wonderful. It's great to see everybody here this morning, and it's great to have our second service. And uh, if you're new here, I just want to encourage you that when everybody leaves for children's ministry, they don't come back. So if you want a better seat, you're welcome to take it. Um, it's always very interesting to me where people, the people left over end up. And uh, so I'm just saying that it's up to you and you can move around and I'll give you a raised eyebrow high five if you do that. Good job for moving. All right. We have been for a few weeks doing a series through Romans about the basics of the Christian faith. And we've been calling it, it's it's about series. So we've been saying it's about this and it's about that and it's about this. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's about faith. What does it mean to be a believer? It's about sin. What does it mean to be saved? It's about having a new life in Christ. And so we've been just focusing on um, basic key parts of what it means to be a Christian. And I've been saying over and over and over again, because it's really true, that the basics are the best part. The basics are the best part. It's not like when you're studying piano and you just have to learn your scales. Boom, 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 boom. Scales aren't the best part. It's like hammering down on some super awesome worship time is the best part of learning a piano, not just running the scales. Same with guitar. It's not just doing scales on guitar that's the best part. It's when you've got some ripping, finger-tapping, meedly-meedlies coming out of your electric guitar. That's the best part. That's the best part, and you work towards the best part by doing the basics. It's not like that in the Christian faith. The basics are the best part And everything else, all the other good stuff, is good stuff. But the gospel is the best part of being a Christian. And so we've been talking about gospel truths by working through Romans. And so if you'll give me the next slide. I just want to do a recap. And the recaps aren't just for people who are just joining us, though they are for you. I'm attempting to kind of pound into our souls the major scriptures for preaching the gospel for two reasons. Number one, so that when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to wonder what scriptures you can use to really encourage yourself in the faith. You can start off with, today I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel because it is, not might be, is, not could be, is the power of God for salvation towards everybody who believes. And that's me. So you don't have to wonder, I'm helping you out here and I'm repeating these truths so that you will have them with you in your soul, which is why we do these things. And so in our first message, we just started right at the beginning of Romans and said, it's about faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's about having faith in Christ. What makes being a Christian different than being a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Thorist, if that's a word, or an atheist or an agnostic? What is different? The difference is that for Christians, we have come to understand that every good thing comes from having faith in Jesus. And this is over and against working for it or earning it. We are not saved by human works. We are saved by believing 
all that God has done for us in Jesus. And through faith, we receive the gift of God. We receive the power of God. We receive the transformation of God and we receive it as a free gift. And there isn't anybody else in the world, any other culture, any other religion, any other philosophy that is doing this, saying you can have it all by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're different. That's why we're different. That's why it all starts with faith in Jesus Christ. And then we went on from there to say Christianity is actually all about sin. Or being a Christian, being a believer is all about sin. And I was laboring to convince us that the world's greatest problem is sin. And our greatest problem is sin. It's not politics. It's not racism. It's not sexism. It's not even hurricanes. All of this stuff gets dealt with when we deal with human sin. And the issue is that as sinners, God is against us. When you're in rebellion against God, there's nothing you can do to fix it because God is receiving the fact that you're saying you're my enemy. I don't want you in my life. I want to rebel against you. And God says, okay, have it. Have the rebellion. Let everything go from bad to worst. There is no rescue unless God does something. And so we were talking about the scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile, every single person have sinned and fallen short of God's intention that we would represent him as well as his standard of holiness. But we are justified or we are made right. We are made okay with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, to be received by faith. And so we're saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to come to believe that sin is the big problem and that Jesus Christ and his cross is God's solution and we receive that rescue by believing in Jesus. And so we added to that saying that being a Christian is about actually being joyful. Some of you are just thinking about your childhood years right now and you're like, It didn't seem like that growing up, but it is true. According to the word of God, the fruit or the produce or the harvest of a Christian life who believes that they are truly justified by faith, not by their works, and that they are really rescued from their sin by the cross of Christ and are accepted by God through grace, the outworking of this is real, profound, deep, and abiding joy. So in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love how he he kind of works through it because um, I think what he's going on there is he's trying to deal with the fact that there's tons of hardship in the Christian life. And so we are always tempted to believe that maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe God isn't really for me. My life is really hard and maybe he's angry at me right now. And so he unpacks in Romans chapter 5, he says, look, And I'm doing this right now with you this morning. Look, Christian, if while you were weak and you couldn't fix things on your own, God sent his son Jesus Christ to fix things. If while you were a sinner and guilty before God, that's when he sent his son to die for your sins. If while you were God's enemy, that's when God chose to redeem you through his son's suffering death. God must be awesome. And he must really love you. Amen? Somebody nod your head. Can I just say... You 11 o'clockers are sometimes just too tired. (laughs) You have had all morning to drink 18 cups of coffee, so I need some head nodding just to show me that you're awake, okay? If God has done so much for us when we were as bad as we could get, he must really love us. And so it is appropriate to be happy in God and just say, God, you're awesome. 
Father, you are so good. You are so good. Anyhow, so I'm telling you it's about joy. Being a, being a Christian is about really enjoying God. And if that is missing in your life without any condemnation, I'm just going to tell you, something's missing in your life that should be there. And so we go back to the basics. Are you really believing that Jesus Christ has saved you? Are you really trusting that you are completely justified in the sight of God through him? Do you understand that he has chosen and rescued you by grace? And we keep working on the basics until it's like, wow, this is actually good news. They should call this good news. They, we, should, we should go around telling people there's some good news out there about this guy named Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. And then we went on to talk about how Christianity is about having a new life. Following Jesus is about having a new life. And this was our baptism Sunday. Does anybody remember our baptism Sunday? That was one of our best baptism Sundays. I think the last baptism Sunday is always one of our best ones, but that was definitely one of our best ones. And we were talking about how um, Scripture says that in baptism, we by faith are being buried with Christ. We go down into the water, and that's why we do full immersion, because it pictures the death and resurrection of Christ better than a sprinkling does. We go down into the water, and we're saying, by faith I have died with Jesus, and you come up out of the water to the celebration, and are saying, by faith in Christ, I am alive in Him, the same way He came out of the grave and out of death into an everlasting life. I am united with Him, and I too am right now in an everlasting life. And I was trying to hammer home the truth that when you are in Christ, you don't have a life on your own anymore. And you may remember I went after that Christian saying where people will say, now that I have Jesus in my life, everything's changed. And I say, no, 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 no. You don't have Jesus in your life. You're dead. Now Jesus is your life and you're in his life, but we don't get Jesus into our life. That's why we get baptized because we're saying, I'm dead. The old me is dead. The me apart from Jesus is dead. There is no Robert Balfour without Jesus. There, he does not exist anymore. And I'm not just kind of being hyperbolic. I, I mean it. There, there is no such thing as Robert Balfour apart from Christ. You cannot meet him. He died. And I have a new life. And so I'm saying... We were buried with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So should we continue in our sin? Is it okay to sin as Christians? No way, not at all, because you're alive now. Why would you act like a dead person in sin? Why would you act like a zombie? Like you're walking dead. No, you're alive now. It's time to be alive in Christ. So consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then we went on to there to talk about this radical new thing called being in the Spirit. And we talked about because right now um, we're not fully redeemed yet, we don't have our new resurrected body yet, there's like almost two us. There's this old us that's the dead us, and there's the new us, that there's, which is the alive us. And this new alive us is in the Spirit. The Spirit is and lives inside of us and it is the spirit of god and we've got this new life that we are and this old life that we aren't anymore but still kind of wanders around trying to convince us to do dumb things anybody and that old life is called the flesh and our new life is called being in the spirit and we have this calling as christians to put to death 
our old sins to put to death being in the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And so we were working through the scripture in Romans 8, 13 through 15, that says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so this is really um, holy, serious statement that if you live like nothing's changed, it's because nothing's changed and you will die. You aren't alive. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So is it on you to put to death the misdeeds of the body? No. Is it all on your own effort? No. Are you just going to like beat yourself up and flitch your elastic bands like I saw some Christians doing years and years back? Every time you sin, you flitch yourself, and then that's going to help you remember not to sin? No! It's by the power of the infinite Spirit of Almighty God dwelling in you, transforming you much more slowly than we usually want, but surely and truly transforming us. We put to death the misdeeds of the body and we will live. And yes, it is absolutely with our will pointed towards what the Spirit is leading us into. And he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, leading to sinning. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I was laboring on the point that the greatest thing that sets us free from our bondage to the flesh and sin is knowing by the Holy Spirit that God is my dad. I don't need I don't need anything else. God is your dad. You don't need that stuff that you panic about not getting. God is my dad. And the Spirit goes to war against all the unbelief in my heart that says, no, He doesn't like me. No, He doesn't want me. It's too, I've done too much. I'm too ashamed. I don't want Him to look at me. And the Spirit says, no! Kill that stuff. I am inside you to convince you that God is your Father. Now you cry out to Him, Abba Dad, right now. power of God. So I was here to tell you that being a Christian is all about being filled with the Spirit and living a life of the Spirit today. And especially letting the Spirit convince you that God is your Father and He's all you need. And so we're going to keep going from there. Hold on, don't move the slide yet. Now, with everything we've talked about, and I've just give you, given you the condensed version there's, there's whole chapters with much more great things to say than I have. I've given you the condensed version, but as Paul is unpacking everything that God has done, and he goes on from talking about the Spirit to how that in, the fact that in Christ we will inherit the entire world with God when we get our resurrected bodies. At the end of chapter 8, he moves into this awesome declaration of confidence in the love of God for us in Christ. And he says this, what then shall we say to these things? All these things, everything I've just told you about, what should we, how should we respond? Should we be like, cool, chicken chat for lunch? Is that what we should do? Should we just be like, hey, there's some new stuff on Netflix. Let's check it out. Is that what we should do? He says, how should, what should we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's how we should respond. Man, if God is this for me, who can be against me? 
He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're supposed to look at the future and go, if God has already sacrificed his son for me, watch out future because there's nothing good that my father will hold back from me in order to accomplish his mission in my life. Watch out future. There is nothing good that my God is going to hold back from me in this life and in the life to come in order to accomplish his good purposes, which I can see what his purpose is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, if you're going to be quiet, I'm going to get louder. (laughs) Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, I know this morning that that many of you are coming in here carrying shame around with you. As I do my pastoral duties, nine out of ten times the issue is shame, the issue is shame, the issue is shame, the issue is shame. Just to let you know, for nine out of ten of you, your issue is shame. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who declares people righteous in his sight. It is God himself through the blood of his own son who says to you, you are not condemned in my sight. So who can condemn you? Only idiots, only wrong people can try to condemn you. Trying to condemn you makes them wrong because God has justified you. So tell that to your shame. Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. What is Jesus doing right now? He's praying. He's praying. Father, help them understand Rob this morning because he's got some weird characteristics as a preacher that can be a stumbling block. Help them understand my word through a broken vessel like Rob this morning so they will get it. He's praying. He's interceding. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written and for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's you. That's you. Do you have faith in Christ? That's where it all starts. We just look to Him. Look to Him and say, help and save. Look to Him and make me experience the truth of all this stuff. I look to you in faith. That's where it all starts. Starts in Romans 1, end up here in Romans 8. Now that's just the recap. And you would think at the end of Romans 8 with this explosion of confidence in God, how it is impossible for a Christian walking in faith in Christ to even imagine being separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. They have not invented anything yet that is such a fine laser that it can cut you off from the love of God, and they never will. Everywhere you go, you are full of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? The love of God lives in you. What can separate you from the Spirit living in you? Goose aids, zeros, nothings, not a zilches, zwat, squat, nothing. It can't do it. You would think that the very next thing Paul would say would just be, let's take a praise break. Time, Time to sing, time to dance, time to get going. 
get the squads going. The ladies on this side, men on the right. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. And then get the laser beams. Do, 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 do. And the smoke machines. Do, do, do. And the tambourines. And the dancing teams. And the art ministry. They do that thing where they do this thing and then they turn it around and you're like, ah, it's the face of Christ. You would think that that's what's next on the docket, right? With, with the journey you've been on. But what you actually get in the scriptures, and we can kind of get thrown off because this is the start of a new chapter, and if you kind of end reading chapter 8 one day and then you pick up reading chapter 9 the next day, you can miss the transition. What you actually get is one of the most violent, 90-degree right-hand turns in thought and emotion in anywhere in scripture. And that's what I want to talk about today, because we need to look at that. So right after boasting of Paul's unstoppable confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, he says this. Next slide, please. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow what? And unceasing anguish. What? In my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And I just get so stumbled by this. Okay, he goes from one sentence where he's saying, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ to I wish I could be separated. from the love of God in Christ. He goes from one minute going, I have this unconquerable joy in God. This unstoppable, even in my sufferings. The more I suffer, the more I rejoice in God. That person can't be stopped. Have you noticed? Just think about it. If, if, the, if you find a person who, the more they hurt, the more they rejoice in God, they, they can't be stopped. They cannot, they just can't. He goes from that to, every day I'm in agony. Every day my heart is full of pain and sorrow. All I did was just read the next couple of sentences. How is that possible? And so I just go, what's going on in this man's soul? This man who is writing by the Holy Spirit, he's writing scripture by the Holy Spirit. How does that work that you go from nothing can stop us to I am in pain every day? And I wish I could get cut off from Christ for other people's sake. How does that happen? How does that work? The issue, as you read on and you see, well, it's right there actually, is the fact that even though the promised Messiah of the Jews has come to rescue them, they are by and large rejecting him. Paul's kinsmen, the Israelites, he goes all over the world preaching and almost all of them reject Christ and then attack Paul. Not all of them. There's a few who don't, but most of the people of God are rejecting the Son of God. And that is the situation that causes the emotional landscape that Paul is describing here of being in great sorrow and unceasing anguish and wishing that he could kind of be like Jesus. 
and be like, you know, Jesus was accursed on the cross and, and cut off from the love of God and it led to my salvation. So I could wish that I too could be accursed on the cross and cut off from the love of God for my kinsman's sake, but that's not possible. And the situation, I think, is not just that it's kind of as a historical oddity weird that the Israelites wouldn't come. It's the fact that because they are rejecting their Savior, they're lost. And there is an eternal consequence coming for their stubborn unbelief that makes Paul weep. Every day. It says unceasing. He says that sorrow's always there. It's there for me to look at. It's like this post in the church here. I don't have to stare at it the whole time, but while I'm preaching, there it is. And I go, there it is. There it is. It's always there. And so I think this is just a good time to talk about the afterlife in view of the gospel, because one of the basics of being a Christian is knowing that there is more than just this life. Amen? That being a Christian now is about what's going to happen after, either at Christ's return or at our death. And I, I want to just be upfront that we're going to spend most of our time talking about the bad possibility, okay? I could spend a lot of time talking about the good outcome of faith in Jesus. We will talk about that, but that's not going to be the main part. Uh, for two reasons. Number one, because that's not my scripture. Paul is talking about grieving over the bad part. But number two is that I think that's what we need to hear this morning more. Um, and maybe that'll come out. What is the good consequence in eternal life for being a Christian, having faith in Christ? In a nutshell, when a Christian dies they go to be with Jesus. And that's the best thing possible. Two illustrations from Scripture that this is true. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, at the end of Jesus' life, Luke 23, 43, you might remember Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem between two thieves. Or they call them thieves, but the Greek word is actually called a lestes, I think it's called. And it's the kind of person who steals by mugging or killing people to take their stuff. So this isn't just a pickpocket. It's not somebody who just stole a loaf of bread out of somebody's kitchen window. This is the kind of person who st steals and kills for money, and especially so that they can support an insurrection against Rome, which would explain why they're getting crucified. They didn't crucify thieves back then. They crucified people who were trying to take down Rome, which is also why Jesus was being crucified, because he was a rival king to the power of Rome, or at least accused of being it. So there's these two thieves, and Matthew tells us that they were both jeering against Christ and kind of mocking him, because that's what everybody else was doing. Do you want to know that, that people are followers by nature? You can be being crucified, and if the crowd of people who are crucifying you start making fun of one of the other people being crucified, you'll join in. That, that was the scenario. Here's somebody being crucified, and the crowd of people, happy that he's dying, they're dying, is making fun of the guy in the middle, so they're like, let's do that too. Because we don't have anything else to do. That's crazy. But they were doing it. 
jeering at Jesus, mocking Jesus. But Luke tells us that one of them had a change of heart. And he turns to the other thief and corrects him and says, you know what, we are being punished for things that we deserved. We've, we've really earned this, but he hasn't. And then he turns to Jesus and so humbly, but still so full of this miraculous faith, he says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's amazing, because usually you don't look at somebody who looks like hamburger, like Jesus did, and is nailed to a piece of wood with armed soldiers around him to make sure he dies before he comes off. Usually you don't look at that kind of person and think, future king of the world. I better throw in my chips with that guy. I'm going to see if he can give me a ride home. You usually don't. But this person, some miracle of the Holy Spirit just opening his eyes, he turns to Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. So humble. Doesn't even say, forgive my sins or help me or get me down from the cross. Just says, please don't forget me. And Jesus' response, and if I could just etch these words into our spirits, he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There are some different ideas about what happens when people die, but whatever you think, set this as a cornerstone that measures everything else. Jesus said to the thief beside him, you and I together today will be hanging out in paradise. That should be a cornerstone of our afterlife. If you leave church and you do hit check and chef and you've just got so much chicken fried goodness running through your brain and it hits you and you just can't think straight and you run a red light and you get hit by a big truck and you're done, today you will be with Christ in paradise. Christian. Today. Paul says a similar thing in Philippians. He's in jail and there's two options. On the one side, he, he might get set free. On the other side, he might get beheaded. And he's writing this letter and he says to the church in Philippi, he's like, I'm not sure which one I'm going to ask Jesus for. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two options. Head cut off, freedom, emotionally I'm torn. Think about that for a second. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is better by far. But for your sake, I want to continue in the flesh for your joy and progress in the faith. So here's his, he's thinking these things through. He's thinking, you know, I'm really, the guys with the swords are right there. They're right there. And, uh, you know, if, if the guy in charge just says, get rid of this Paul guy, I could be with Jesus today. And it's like, that sounds really good. But there's a lot of weak churches out there and a lot of people who need encouragement. So I'm actually, I think I'm going to pray for the getting out of here so I can go and help them. But this is his mindset. I would like to go and be with Jesus today, is his mindset. Because when a believer dies in Christ, they go to be with Jesus today. And you can go and read revelations about like the streets of gold and the gates made out of pearl and the, the sun shining all the time because Jesus is the sun. And that's great imagery. I don't care how nice it is there. Literally, like literally... I really don't care. I had a teacher when I was in high school who said, I can't wait to go to the, the great hockey rink surrounded by an 18-hole golf course in the sky. I don't care if there's nothing to do. As long as Jesus is there. That's all I want. That's all I want. I don't care if heaven is an elevator, trapped in an elevator, listening to 1950s Goldies. I don't care. I don't care. Sorry, 1940s. 1930s? What do you not like? 
I, do, I don't care. I don't care as long as it's Jesus. Just get me Jesus. I just want to be somewhere where I can never lose Jesus. I just want to see Jesus. That's heaven. And I, I want to invite you to have that same appetite. As long as it's Jesus, that's what I want. Whatever gets me Jesus, that's what I want. On the other hand, but it will be really cool to find out what paradise is like. Like when Jesus says, we're going to be together in paradise, I think he knows what he's talking about. He invented food. How good is the food going to be there? He invented spas. There we go. Come on. He knows how to relax. He's been doing it since the seventh day for a long time. So it's going to be awesome. But I don't care unless Jesus is there. But there is another possibility. There is another possibility for not ending up with Christ, for not being with Christ. And I'm not trying to tell you this morning that we don't know how it's going to turn out. I preach the gospel to you so that you would know you end up avoiding what I'm going to talk about by putting your faith in Christ and believing in his salvation and his cross, by believing you're dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus, and by being led by the Holy Spirit into fighting your sin by God's own strength. You don't have to wonder. Believe in Jesus. There is a really, really undesirable consequence permanent consequence, I believe, to not believing in Christ. And so I want to kind of deal with three options that people kick around nowadays. Because the afterlife is not something that you can photograph or send a satellite into outer space to analyze or get a telescope or microscope fine enough to find and then tell people about, um, we are completely dependent on supernatural revelation to know what happens after we die. And I know some people die and they come back and they tell people there's great stories. I don't put one ounce of credibility in any of it. In part because one of the stories that turned out to be bunk was written by a guy named Malarkey. <laughs> Lately, I still have no idea how anybody believed in that after-death story. His name was Malarkey. <laughs> but it turned out that the kid was just saying, I just made it all up. And the people around him said, don't, don't worry about it. People are getting encouraged. I don't put one shred of confidence in any of those stories. Like, if it's true, fine. But who cares? I've got the Bible. I don't, re- I don't. Like, I'm sorry, that sounds bad. If you die and come back, that's great. But nothing you say is going to be any more important to me than the Word of God. Plus, I have this story in Scripture at the end of Second Corinthians where Paul said, I did go to heaven, and I'm not allowed to talk about what I saw and heard. So if somebody is talking about their trip to heaven, they didn't see anything worth knowing. They didn't hear anything worth hearing. Because if you heard something worth hearing and saw something worth seeing, God would have said to you, don't talk about this. Because that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Okay, so just so you know. just You can do whatever you want with that. That's Rob Balfour. But there's kind of three possibilities that get kicked around. Annihilationism, which is the belief that at the final judgment, people who don't come to Christ are just destroyed and enter into a state of non-existence or non-experience. Universalism, the idea that eventually everybody gets saved and everybody goes to heaven. Or hell, which is the belief that the experience and existence of people who reject Christ and die in their sins is an ongoing punishment or an experience of some kind of torment. Those are the three main options. And we do need scripture. And we need scripture because in the history of the church, there were hundreds of years where the 
people who are Christians believed in this thing called purgatory. You ever heard of it before? Purgatory? It's kind of this idea that when you die, you're, and you're not a pagan, so you've been baptized and you went to church, um, you're not a pagan, but you also weren't like a saint. You weren't Mother Teresa, you weren't St. Augustine, you weren't, you know, somebody really good with that weird haircut, the, the man-made baldness patch on the back. You weren't some awesome monk who went straight to heaven. You were just a regular person. You go to purgatory for 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, where kind of like in a slow roasting barbecue process, you would have the bad parts of you burned out of you through torment or hardship, and then after a certain amount of time, you'd be good enough to actually go to heaven. After you died. That was, that was what most of the church believed. And that kind of teaching led to the Pope um, in an attempt to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica to send this guy named Tetzel into Europe who said, if you give me money, I will help your loved ones get out of purgatory faster. I have this permission by the Pope to forgive parts of their sins and they will get to heaven faster, though they're in purgatory now. And so he was selling these things called indulgences, which provoked Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which we're going to celebrate on October 31st, Reformation Day. Even if you're Anabaptist, you wouldn't be Anabaptist unless the Reformation started. And I know there's lots of conflict and so forgive us for our sins and let's just get on with proclaiming the gospel. But the belief in purgatory led to the Reformation because most Christians really believe that even if you're pretty good, you go to torment for a long time at death. And it is nowhere, nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. So what I know is that people just like you and me can believe junk about the afterlife. Anybody? Sorry, you might be like, not me. I'm better than you. I I go to SBC. Something like that. I don't know what it is. (laughs) SBC is a great place. But I know that human nature is because we can't touch the afterlife, we are willing to believe anything about it unless you have the dedication to refining your thoughts by God's testimony. Okay, so annihilationism. The idea that people just are destroyed at the final judgment and don't experience anything anymore. Universalism, everybody gets saved. Hell, there is an ongoing eternal punishment for rejecting Christ or for dying in your sin without faith. And I want to address these just by turning in the Gospel of Luke to something Jesus said. Please bear with me. This is really important. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's trying to address their fear of man. Okay? One of the ongoing problems that Christians have is that we're afraid of what people think or might do to us. It's just, welcome to life as a Christian. We're almost all afraid of people. And Jesus is trying to deal with this by giving us some, some rational situation to think about. He says, I want you to think about this thing and then make a decision where you're going to place your fear. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who, who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So there's the double understroke exclamation mark point here. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Then he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So aren't they cheap? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. So I'm not going to address how Jesus gets from fear, do this kind of fearing, to don't fear. That, that's an interesting little thing as we follow his train of thought there. I'm not going to address that. But I just want to talk about this two options for fearing people that we have in life. Okay? He says option number one is people. Why are we afraid of people? Well, they can hurt us, right? So you can either 
backstab somebody, slander somebody, trash somebody on Facebook, steal from somebody, take their stuff. You can hit them with a stick. You can beat them up. You can pull their hair out, poke their eyeballs in, pull their teeth out, put bamboo shoots underneath their skin. You can flay their back and put vinegar on it. You can cut off their hands and feet. You can hold their feet up to a fire until there's nothing left but bones. There's lots of different things that people can do to people to hurt people. Amen? Sorry. I was talking about the medieval times, and so it just jumped in there. And uh, it's terrible, but it's true. And the worst thing that people can do to people, if you think about it, is kind of like kill them. Just be like, we're done with you, and we're going to take away all your future, all your relationships, we're going to kill you. And Jesus acknowledges, this is the worst thing people can do to you, is to kill you. But, he says, once they've done that, you're free. Once you've died, you don't have to worry about people anymore. They, they can't do anything to you, right? It, they've done their worst, and it's over. In fact, so if you think about it, the worst thing people can do to you is to put you in a place where they can't do anything more to you. That's what Jesus wants us to think about and get. The worst thing that can happen to me is that people can't touch me anymore. So maybe I shouldn't be too afraid of them to start off with. But he says, I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. So he says, there is this person who can kill you too. Hello? There is a person who has the power and authority to end your life today. Aneurysm, car crash, whatever. He has the authority and the right to do it, and you couldn't stop him if you tried. And after you've died, he has the authority to cast you into hell. So after you've gone to this place where people can't touch you anymore, there is a person who can still have control and authority over you to do things to you that you don't want. And that person is Jesus' father. And so he's, he's inviting us to think, who do you want to be in control of your life? That's what he means by fear. Who do you want to be influencing you? Who, who do you want to, to go to and say, I can do this and displease this person, but then please these people, or I can do this and then displease these people, but please this person. He says, do the math on this one. Who do you want to be pleasing with your life, and who do you want to be displeasing with your life? Because most of the time you can't keep them both happy. But in order for this argument to work, there has to be the potential for a negative consequence after death. Is this true? So if there is the potential for negative things happening, bad things happening, torment happening, getting cast into hell happening after death, then universalism can't be true or Jesus was just messed up here. The argument would run, don't fear people who can hurt you in this life but then afterwards can't touch you. Fear the one who can kill you in this life, but afterwards it'll be heaven. Yeah, fear him, because nothing you do matters, because no matter what you do, you're going to heaven. So respect him. Listen to him, because no matter what you do now, you're going to heaven. So whether or not you're like an overseas medical missionary or a mass murderer, doesn't really matter, because you're going to heaven, just like everybody else. So better respect God. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. And Jesus wants us to think about this. This is a what-makes-sense moment here. This isn't an emotional appeal. This is just write down with a pen and paper and draw some lines between things and then think this through. What about annihilationism? Okay, the belief that after death, even if you've totally rejected God and Christ, if you're Hitler or Stalin, what's going to happen is you're just going to be caused to disappear into a vapor of nothingness and go into a state of non-existence and non-experience. 
So how does that logic work with the thing? Don't fear them who, after they've killed the body, can't do anything to you. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, will kill your soul and can't do anything to you. Like he will put you in a place where eternally you can't be hurt or experience anything bad. It doesn't make sense. Again, then really life doesn't matter because the worst thing that can happen to you is just nothing. You're just, you're, you're just won't exist anymore. You won't, you won't, sure, you won't be happy, but you won't be sad and you won't know that you're not happy or sad. And so what's the big deal? I could go on from there, but I kind of, I, this passage in its own can deal with both of this stuff. Jesus is convinced that we need to respect his father and believe that he loves us and takes care of us when we need him to because the consequences after death are way worse than anything that can happen in this life, ongoingly. And I could talk about the rich man and Lazarus. I could talk about Paul talking about an eternal destruction, being shut away from the presence and glory of the Lord. I could talk about how many times in Matthew Jesus describes the judgment as a place where when people are shut out from God, it is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I could talk about that stuff, but I, I don't, actually don't need to. He only takes this one story to say, eternal life separated from God is terrible. It's worse than anything that can happen to you in this life. The problem is that this believing that after death there is torment for unbelief it's grossly unpleasant. It's completely unpleasant. It's just really uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable that if you believe this is true, you might end up in a state where you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. True? If you sit there and you think, I don't know if I want to believe this. What's the, the, the crisis in your soul is... Because it sounds like if I accept this as true, I'm going to have some great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my life. And that's what I don't want. Uh, most of my life is committed to not having those things. So why would I believe something that's going to cause that? And I actually think, this is my th theory, that the reason we do have alternative theologies to ongoing punishment is be so that we can avoid Paul's experience of life. It doesn't feel good to think that my dad and my grandpa and my grandma and my other grandpa and my other grandma are right now in torment because as far as the evidence of their lives is concerned, none of them had any faith in Jesus Christ, even though they had plenty of opportunity. It is super unpleasant. It really does feel like a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish where you're just like, I can't see any way out of this feeling for the rest of my life until I see Jesus face to face. My concern is that when Christians, choosing the less biblical options or with universalism, the almost completely unbiblical option of life after death, because it helps us personally relieve any anxiety we might have about other people's states, is that we end up becoming like a hospital full of stoned doctors. In a hospital, there are lots of materials that will make your pain and suffering go away. That's why we go there, right? Half the time, 
the Tylenol's not working, I want something in a syringe. Just poke a hole in my skin and give a bag, and when you're not looking, I will squeeze that bag because I want this discomfort to go away now. Don't squeeze the bag. <laughs> Usually that's controlled, but I don't want anybody hurting themselves. Rob said he squeezed the bag once. I'm going to do it too. Don't squeeze the bag. You go to a hospital to get help, to get rescued, to get saved. Now, if you show up at a hospital after a car accident and you've broken your leg and your femur's sticking out the side and you're rolled into the emergency room and the nurse comes just stumbling in there. Hey, buddy. Are you hungry? I'm really hungry right now. Because there's all these billows of potweed coming out of their break room. Right? That's why we need to legalize pot. There's too many people feeling too much discomfort and they want to just chill out for, for legal. That's why we need it, right? It doesn't make anybody healthier. It won't make you live longer. It's still smoke in your lungs. It's still THC doing things to your brain. You have no idea. It stays in your brain. But we need this stuff because it'll help people relax. So she, the nurse, male nurse, comes out just, hey, wow, that's a lot of blood. I was going to think about something for a second. That's a lot of blood. Is that a bone? Dude, you're messed up. If the doctors are high and the nurses are stoned and the orderlies are spaced out, who's going to get helped? If the Christians are committed to their comfort, who gets saved? Not, yeah, nobody. Not the people who are actually in danger. This is my concern. When people write books about universalism saying, if God's going to be good, he really does need to save everybody because I can't imagine a good God who doesn't save everybody. The, the point is to make everyone feel kind of good about themselves. The result will be people damned. So what do we do? I'm really grateful for your attention thus far. I want to give us some directions about what to do with this thought. Um, number one, I want to invite you to not run away from the feelings of this reality. And maybe every once in a while look at it. And be okay with the, the sadness that comes and the grief that comes. Now, I, when I was in Guatemala, I went there for a mission, mission trip a decade and a half ago. I was staying with this lady named Honey, which is really funny. And she totally reminded me of my mom. If you just took my mom and kind of took her skin tone down a few notches and made her speak Spanish, that was this lady I was staying with. But one of the things she did while we were there is she drove me and this other person we were out with to a cemetery and took us to her dad's tombstone and just said, this is my dad, he died, he wasn't a Christian. And then she just cried there for a while. And then we, we left. And in hindsight, I would just think God was showing me something. This, this lady knew. This is what you do. You just, you cry and then you serve the Lord and you don't run away from the emotions. 
So I'm inviting you to not run away from it, and I'm inviting you to let the Lord be the Lord over helping you mature by carrying around these emotions. I'm not saying you have to force something on yourself, but just say, God, would you help me to grieve over the lost and care about them? Number two, I don't want you to panic about God. The next thing Paul says after he talks about how he's feeling about his brothers being lost, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's verse 5, 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. So he says, I carry around this anguish. But the next thing he says, but it's not like I think for a second God's out of control. It's not for a second like I think that God's word has failed at all. God is in control. And the next three chapters are really just him explaining how God is working all these things out for his glory and his eternal purposes to exalt Christ over an entire people, Jew and Gentile together, who are both totally lost sinners and are both totally saved by grace. So whatever you do, do not let yourself lose your hope in God and Christ. He really is ruling. The next thing we need to do is pray. Chapter 10. So the next chapter after this one, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for, is that, is for them, is that they may be saved. So what does Paul do when he's bringing to the surface his anguish over his lost brothers? He says, I pray. I pray. I really pray. I love them. My heart's desire is that they would be saved, so I pray. And so we really... We need to pray. And then lastly, I just want to encourage us to ask the Lord to kind of pull us out of the humdrum of daily life, pull us out of just the getting the kids to work and getting the, ourselves to school or vice versa, whatever the answer is for you in your life. And just like, oh, my marriage and oh, the kids and children's ministry and Rob's talking so long. It's one o'clock and my blood sugar levels are down around my toes. And I should have brought that candy bar, but then the kids would have wanted some of it. And so I didn't take it because I didn't want to share. And I didn't want to start a fight because it's quiet in the second service and everybody would have heard it. All that humdrum regular stuff. I want to invite the Lord to, I want you to invite you to ask the Lord to lift you out of this and just say, God, would you make me as useful as possible? in my life for the salvation of other people. I'm not saying you need to become a missionary or a pastor. God has a plan for you in the place he's got you. But would you say to Jesus, Jesus, make me as useful as possible for the salvation of other people. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and following Paul, I'll just to paraphrase him, he says something similar. He says, in my ministry, when I go to minister to the Jews, I am a Jew though I'm not under the law of the Jews, but I will do anything in order to see some of them saved. And when I go to minister to the Gentiles, I am a Gentile. Even though I'm not under the law of God, I'm still under the law of Christ. I don't go crazy, but I will do anything to see some of those Gentiles saved. He says, I become all things to all people in order to see some come to Christ. And that's an attitude he wants us to mimic. God... Will you make me as useful as possible for the salvation of people, for the rescue of people? And what we can do is we can start the practice of saying about our lives, Jesus, is this going to help people get saved? How I'm spending my time helping people get saved is how we're spending our marriage helping people get saved. It's what we're doing with our money helping people get saved. It's what I'm doing with my free time helping people get saved. And will you take it and use it? Why don't we pray? Father, I just thank you so much for your word and for your worth. And I just want to present myself to you as somebody who is in love with his own comfort.
and is often afraid of people. And Father, I give you myself. I, I want to join Paul in this kind of Christian maturity that carries around the weight of the eternal importance of every person's life. And Father, I want us as a church, I want you to take us into being zealous for all things for the sake of other people's good in Christ. Lord, little refinements, little adjustments. I'm not panicked. I'm not worried. I'm not stressed. But I'm looking to you that you would help each one of us realize, hey, I'm on mission with Christ for other people's rescue. I might not be a doctor, but I'm a nurse. I might not be a nurse, but I run the ultrasound. I might not run the ultrasound, but I do the blood work testing. I might not do the blood work testing, but I'm an orderly. I might not be an orderly, but I'm running the finance. We're all part of this rescue mission for Christ, with Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us feel the weight of eternity in our lives. Amen.